0: Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill Podcast. At Rock Hill, we're all about reaching people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Listen in as Pastor Matt Chappell teaches how God's Word applies to our everyday lives. I love what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 9. Paul's writing to his dear friends at the church at Philippi. A church that he started, and he says this Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, everybody say Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things of earth and things under the earth. And at the name of Jesus, that everyone should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Anybody thankful today that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is not just a good person, a good man. He is God in the flesh and he is who we worship today. And we are gearing up for Easter weekend at Rock Hill. And uh, we're praying that God is gonna give us a great Easter season and uh, Easter weekend. And uh, today we're gonna start a brand new series of messages uh, that I'm very excited about, For the Love of Humanity. And uh, we're gonna be talking about the love of Jesus for humanity, and uh, we're gonna be taking a journey with Jesus as he approaches the cross and approaches uh, the grave on Easter weekend. And uh, excited about this series. You can go and find a seat this morning. If you have a Bible today, we're going to be in John chapter number 18. John chapter number 18 is where we're going to be, and over the next four weeks, we're going to visit four different places in Scripture. We're going to visit visit, uh, Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha, and the grave on Easter weekend. And so as we approach the cross, we're going to visit these places mentioned in Scripture. We're going to study uh, Jesus' love for us in these different places. And so this morning, we're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter number 18. And I'd like to preach a message today that I'm calling No Surprises. No Surprises. And uh, we're going to start reading in John chapter 18, verse number 1. If you're ready, would you say amen? Amen. The Bible says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all things, Everybody say, all things. Knowing all things that should come upon him, he went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. And as soon, as, as soon then, as he had said unto them, I am he, he uh, they went backward and they fell to the ground. Then asked He them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these, the disciples, go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which ye spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, Shall I not drink it? Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Lord, thank you for this day you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you this morning. And God, thank you for the words of these songs that we just sang, directing our affection, our attention to your name. And God, I pray that as we look to your word today, Lord, I pray that you would... Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that you would give me the words to say that uh, would be beneficial and uh, edifying for us this morning. God, I pray that your word would speak to us in a powerful way. Uh, God, I pray that we can leave this room differently than how we came in. God, I pray that we would be encouraged and inspired and challenged to uh, be a bold witness throughout this Easter season. And God, I pray that we would understand your heart in the garden and uh, just how much you love us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said How many of you would say that you startle easily? Can I see your hands? You startle easily. Uh, My wife, Katie, she startles easily. And uh, it's for that reason that I like to hide in the house sometimes and jump out and scare her. And uh, I used to do that often. I don't do it quite as much anymore because one time I jumped out and scared her and she started to cry and it made me feel like a terrible person. (laughs) And so uh, I don't do that anymore. Uh, But we still uh, like to jump out and scare our children. We have three children, five and under, and uh, it's still uh, fun to kind of jump out and scare them uh, every once in a while. And yesterday, uh, my wife, Katie... Uh, She sent me a video uh, when she was with the kids and she kind of scared them and I brought that video for us this morning. And uh, Liv's face says it all right there, right? And uh, she was surprised. And the truth is, this morning, that life is filled with surprises. Life is filled with the unexpected. And uh, sometimes life hands us uh, a good surprises, maybe an unexpected check in the mail, or maybe some loved ones came to visit you, or or some good thing happened to you. And sometimes life gives us good surprises. And then sometimes life hands us uh, bad surprises, not so welcome surprises into our lives. This past January, we woke up, uh, Katie and I, everything was great. We went downstairs. We were getting ready for the day and all of a sudden Katie kind of kneeled over and she was in intense pain and we didn't know why. We took her to the emergency room and uh, they started doing some tests. A few hours later she was in an emergency surgery that would save her life and when we woke up that day we were not expecting to go to the hospital. We were not expecting uh, for this to happen but it was it was just what the day had for us. It was a surprise in the day. Life is filled with the unexpected. Life is filled with surprises. This is a truth that uh, James the brother of Jesus, he communicated so clearly in James chapter 4 when he says this in James 4 verse number 14. He says, whereas ye know not. He says, let me just tell you something. You don't know what shall be on the morrow. Uh, We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what is uh, going to happen in our future. Life is filled with surprises. Life is filled with the unexpected. But here's a truth that is deeply embedded in scripture that is so encouraging for us today, and that is that nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing takes God by surprise. He is always aware. He is always active. He is completely omniscient. He is completely all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful. Is anybody thankful today that our God is completely omniscient? He is completely omnipotent. He knows it all. He sees it all. He is aware of everything. This is a truth that the Bible uh, tells us time and time again. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary." There is no searching of his understanding. His understanding knows no limits. The Bible says in Isaiah uh, 46, verse, uh, verse number 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things which are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. See, God knows the beginning to the end, the end to the beginning. He knows it all. Job said this in Job chapter 37, verse number 16. Dost thou know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him which is, watch this, Perfect in knowledge, he knows it all. And I think it's very important for us to understand this morning that when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, all the information in the world and what we're going through, God is always in the know. He knows it all. Whatever you're facing today, God already knows. Whatever you're stressed about, God already knows. Whatever is filling your heart and mind with anxiety, He already knows. And this is an encouraging theological truth that we are going to see unfold in John chapter number. 18 in the garden. John, the author of this gospel, is making it abundantly clear that the events that are about to unfold did not take Jesus by surprise, but were in fact divinely orchestrated and prepared by Jesus. He was always in the know. John was making it very clear that Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was a volunteer. He, he willingly chose to go the path of the cross. He voluntarily chose to go the path of the cross. Why would someone willingly and voluntarily choose to go the path of the cross and choose to endure such pain and such suffering and such torment? Why would someone choose to do that For the love of humanity he did it for us because of his great love that he has for us john chapter 13 verse number one says this now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour was come now all throughout Jesus' ministry time and time again he said mine hour is not yet come mine hour is not yet come and the disciple says do this miracle and jesus will you do this and he said time and time again my hour is not yet come but now we see his hour is come And he says, "Mine hour is come that he should depart out of the world unto the Father. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end." And so, why did Jesus go to the cross? And why did Jesus uh, do all of this voluntarily? It was because of his great love for us. And we come to John chapter eighteen and. Jesus had already spent time with his disciples in the upper room. They had had the Last Supper. Jesus establishes the new covenant, and uh, they leave uh, that place, and now they are headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, in Scripture, there are three gardens that uh, really have an impact on all of eternity. The first garden is the Garden of Eden. This is where uh, life began. This is where uh, uh, Adam sinned, and that sin triggered the fall of humanity, which put a curse on creation and, and upon uh, the earth. And so we see the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter number 3. At the end of time, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter number or, uh, Revelation chapter 21, uh, 20 and 21, we learn about the garden city of heaven. This is Eden restored. This is when... Uh, We get to enjoy the presence of Jesus forever. We get to experience the the riches and the beauty and the wonder of heaven forever uh, when we uh, go to heaven with Jesus. That is at the end of time. We see uh, the Garden of Eden. We see the Garden City of heaven. And right in the middle, we have perhaps the most significant garden in all of history, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in this place where Jesus was betrayed, where Jesus was arrested and taken to be Crucified uh, several years ago, Kate and I we were in Israel and we visited this garden, and it's in this place where Jesus was about to experience great pain and great suffering because He loves us. William Barclay says this about Jesus's time in. The garden. He says few scenes in Scripture so show us the qualities of Jesus as does the arrest in the garden. And so, what I would like to do this morning is I would like to learn from Jesus. Is that okay if we do that this morning? I'd like to look at Jesus in the garden, and I want to glean some principles about Jesus and some truths about Jesus that I believe that we can apply to our own lives this morning. If you're ready, would you say Amen? Amen. Number one, four principles about Jesus from his time in the garden. Number one, Jesus relied on the power of prayer. To sustain him. Jesus relied on prayer to sustain him. Notice verse number one. It says this: when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with, with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And so as Jesus is approaching the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a private garden that someone allowed Jesus access to, as they are approaching this garden, the Bible tells us that uh, they walk over, they pass over the brook Kidron. Now we know that this was uh, the season of the Passover, we know that there would have been uh, millions of people in the city of Jerusalem, this would have been an unbelievably crowded time. In fact... Uh, the historian Josephus tells us that there was a census taken around this time that perhaps upwards of 250,000 lambs were being slaughtered at the temple during the Passover. And so this was a bloody scene. This was an incredible, chaotic uh, scene that is taking place. And what would happen is someone would come and they would uh, sacrifice an animal there at the temple and literally the blood from the animal would uh, spill onto the altar. And from the altar, they had channels that would go and flow into the brook Kidron. And so history tells us that during the season of the Passover, the brook Kidron would have literally been bright red from all the blood that was flowing to it. And so as Jesus passes over the brook Kidron, he is seeing the blood from all of the Passover lambs that were being slaughtered, and it is a vivid reminder of the perfect sacrifice that he was about to make as the perfect spotless Passover lamb. And so Jesus is already seeing and understanding what is about to take place. He's seeing the blood uh, flow through the river as he passes over Kidron and he comes to the garden and John doesn't tell us specifically right away on what's taking place in the garden? Uh, the other gospels, the synoptic gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—they tell us John was written well after the other gospels, and so he doesn't include some of the details that are already included in some of the other gospels. And so uh, he doesn't tell us exactly what happens, but we know in the book of Matthew that it says this in Matthew twenty-six thirty-six. Then Jesus, uh, then cometh Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And so what Jesus does when he gets to the garden is he spends a considerable amount of time in. In prayer. He begins to pray. And I want us to see two things about uh, Jesus's prayer in the garden. Two, two things that kind of characterize his prayer. And the first thing was pain. Um, I was thinking about this this week. The worst pain that I've ever been in. How many of you can think of a time or a moment in life where you can remember the worst pain that you have ever been in? Anybody like that? I remember the worst pain that I was ever in was in the country of Costa Rica. I was on a mission trip uh, with some teenagers and uh, we were uh, doing some missions work in Costa Rica. Everything was going great. Everything was fine. When all of a sudden I felt some intense pain in my side. And uh, I wasn't sure what it was. And I was trying to drink a lot of water. But I ended up just kind of vomiting a lot. And, and uh, my side was killing me. And I didn't know what was going on. I found out later that I had kidney stones. And uh, it was a terrible, uh, terrible pain. It was the worst. And and uh, we had a, a doctor had to come to the, uh, uh, the hotel room there, and they were giving me an IV, and they were all speaking Spanish. I had no idea what they were doing, but I was just like, I don't care. Just, just make me feel better. And uh, I ended up going to the hospital, and I was in the hospital, and I was just kind of waiting. My cousin Julie was actually there with me, and I actually vomited, and some of it got on her foot. I'm so sorry about that, Julie. Uh, true story. And uh, I rushed into the room, and uh, they were about to give me um, all kinds of medicine. They're about to give me a shot of medicine. I had no idea what it was, and I was kind of like, what are you about to give me? And uh, the missionary that was. There there with us, he just smiled at me and he said, "He said, "It's better than morphine." And I was like, "What does that mean? Like, What are you about to give me right now?" And they gave me a shot, and I started to feel a little bit better, but that was, without a doubt, uh, the worst pain that I was ever in. It was extremely uncomfortable. I was so ready to just uh, have that experience be done. But I want to tell you this morning that that pales in comparison to the pain that not, not only that Jesus felt on the cross, but that Jesus was experiencing in the garden. Jesus was in great agony, in great pain, even in the garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says in Mark 14, that he was so amazed. He was suddenly struck with terror in the garden. Uh, Matthew 26, 37 says that he was very heavy. He was weighed down with a feeling of distress. Matthew 26, 38, he was exceeding sorrowful unto death Uh, that meant that he was at the point of death as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He was in great agony, in great pain over over the experience that he was about uh, to have. The Bible says in Luke 22, verse 44, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He is literally under so much stress and pressure that he is uh, sweating and blood has has entered into his sweat glands. This is a rare medical condition that uh, doctors call hematopathy where uh, your blood vessels are under such stress that they rupture and they enter into your sweat glands. And Jesus is experiencing all of this pain, all of this agony while he prayed in the garden. Jesus was fully man, fully God, as Being a man, he was uh, experiencing all of the pain that we would experience. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Jesus has felt the pain that we have experienced. He has gone through the difficulties that we have gone through. He knows all about scars. He knows all about suffering. He knows all about difficulty. In fact, Jesus was writing a letter to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter two, verse number nine. He says this, I know. Everybody say, I know. know. He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. He says, I know, Smyrna, everything that you're going through. I know that you're experiencing pain. I know that you're experiencing poverty. I know that you are experiencing persecution. I just want to encourage you today, if you are going through a difficult season, if you are going through a trial, if you are carrying something that nobody else knows about, I want to tell you this, Jesus knows. And he is not only aware, he is active. He is is moving. He is at work in your life. And he is working behind the scenes. And often we don't see the whole picture. But I want to tell you today that you can rest assured that our God is complete. 100 percent in the know and in control he knows it all he's experienced the pain that we've experienced he's experienced the suffering that we have experienced and jesus here is under great pain while he is praying in the garden but i want you to see not only his pain but his his pattern because notice what it says in verse number two and judas also we'll talk about judas in a second judas also which betrayed him he knew the place now how did judas know the place for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Jesus had a pattern of praying at Gethsemane. Jesus had a pattern of going uh, to prayer. Jesus exemplified this pattern uh, of prayer. And so, yes, he experienced pain, but he also exemplified a pattern. And I want to encourage you today when you are experiencing pain to emulate the pattern of Jesus and to go to the Lord in prayer. And so he had this pattern of going to Gethsemane. In fact, there's this interesting section in the book of John, uh, John chapter 7, verse uh, number 53. It's the last verse in the chapter. It says this, Jesus was done teaching and doing ministry. And it says this, every man went unto his own house. So Jesus is done teaching, he's done for the day, and and everybody goes to their own house. The very next verse in the very next chapter says this, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, where was the garden of Gethsemane. And so everyone goes home, Jesus goes to Gethsemane. Why? Because prayer is where Jesus felt at home everyone else goes home, Jesus says, I'm going to go pray because prayer was something that was very familiar to him. It was not something that was foreign to him. I wonder today, is your prayer life something that is familiar or something that is foreign? Is it something that we're accustomed to, we're used to, we have a pattern of prayer, or is it like, it's been a while, God? Is it something that's foreign? Is it something that's familiar? G. Campbell Morgan, he said this, We need to maintain the life of fellowship with God. However dark the day, however rough the way, for the soul at worship is the soul who is ever guarded against temptation. He says, when you are going through extreme difficulty, you must maintain that fellowship with God and exemplify that pattern of prayer. It's to that end that uh, we're excited about leading into Easter. We're going to hear more about this in a minute for Cover the City campaign, but we're going to have five nights of prayer leading into Easter weekend. Monday through Friday, every night, we're going to meet at Miller Park, and we're going to spend time in prayer together because as a church, we believe in the power of prayer, and we want to set a pattern of prayer in our lives just like Jesus did. And so Jesus relied on prayer to sustain him. Even though he was going through great pain in the garden, he had this pattern of praying. If you're with me, would you say amen? Amen. Jesus relied on prayer, and so can we. Notice number two this morning. Jesus moved forward in the face of opposition. Jesus moved forward in the face of opposition. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter number 22, verse number three, then entered Satan into the heart, into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And so Judas, who was never a true follower of Jesus, is now under the control of Satan, and he is going to uh, betray Jesus. And the Bible says this in verse number three. It says, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with the lanterns and torches and weapons. And so Judas gets these guys together. There's, there's different groups here. The first is a band of men. In, in the Greek, it's the word spira. It means a cohort. This was a Roman cohort. It was a military group of men uh, that, that ranged between 600 to 1,000 People. And so Judas goes and he grabs this Roman cohort of soldiers, 600 to 1,000 people, and officers. This would have been, These would have been the Jewish uh, temple police. And so he gets the temple police and they band together and they're coming together to go and arrest Jesus. And so you have upwards of 1,000 people getting ready to go and, and arrest an unarmed Galilean carpenter. And they are going to to arrest Jesus, the Romans and the religious. And it's interesting because typically the Romans and the religious, they did not get along. They hated each other. Uh, The religious, the Jews, they wanted nothing to do with the Romans because uh, they were oppressed people. And the Romans, they didn't care too much for the Jews, for the religious. But here we see them actually coming coming together in this unholy alliance uh, under the same banner of arresting Jesus. And so they get ready to go and they are going to arrest Jesus. Notice what it says in verse number 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, nothing took Jesus by surprise. He, he knew this was about to happen. He was completely in control. This was divinely orchestrated. He knew all things. He is completely sovereign uh, that should come upon him, went forth and saith, said, said unto them, Whom seek ye? And so Jesus was completely in control. And I love that Jesus did not choose the garden as a place to hide, but that he chose the garden as a place to be found. Jesus wanted them to come. He knew what was about to happen. He knew that he had to go to the cross for the redemption of humanity. This was all a part of the plan. And I love this. Knowing all things, knowing the cross was before him, knowing torture was before him, knowing great pain was before him, knowing great adversity was before him, knowing betrayal was before him. Watch this. He went forth. I love how one author says it. One author says that Jesus, as a roaring champion, he takes the first step towards the enemy knowing everything that was about to happen Jesus did not shy away from the adversity but he actually took a step closer to the adversity he took a step closer to the opposition because our God is always in control and I'm so thankful that Jesus did not flinch in the face of opposition but that he took a step forward and I want to tell you today that the same power uh, that rose Jesus from the dead is available within us and so when adversity comes into our lives and when opposition comes into our lives we don't have to cower in fear we don't have to take a step back and quit but that. At- with the boldness of a line that Jesus Jesus can give us, that we can take a step forward towards the opposition. We can move forward towards the opposition and say, hey, it's not my strength, it's his strength within me. Jesus was about to experience great pain, great suffering, great difficulty, but he took a step forward. Aren't you thankful today that Jesus took a step forward for you and for me? He knows the enemy is coming. He doesn't go and hide. He didn't say, come on guys, let's go. No, he went out to meet them and to greet them. Jesus is completely sovereign, and we see his sovereignty, but we also see his deity. Notice the next verse, verse number five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. Now, in, in, in the Greek, the word he is, is omitted. He's just saying, I am, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And so when, when they ask, who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus responds by saying, I am. This is a title in the Greek. It's ego Emi. It's the title uh, uh, used nine times in the book of John. It's what theologians call the tetragrammaton, uh, grammat- the, the name of God. The tetragrammaton, the name of God. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 14 says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. I am that I am. And he said, uh, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me. And so this was the divine title. This was Yahweh. This was Jehovah. And so when uh, the band of men, when the Roman cohort, when they said uh, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus responded by saying, I am. He was using that divine title. What was he saying? I'm not merely a good teacher. I'm not merely a good person. I am God in the flesh. I am King of Kings. I am Lord of Lords. I am uh, the living uh, water. I am I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What was he saying? I am that I am. This is not just a good person. This is the great I am. He says, I am. I love what? One theologian says, he says, at that point, the enemy saw clear. You may accept the lofty claims of Jesus. You may take him as very God or else you must reject him as a miserable, deluded enthusiast. There is really no middle ground. Jesus refuses to be pressed into the mold of a mere religious teacher. We see his sovereignty, but we see his deity. He's saying, I'm I'm more than just a person. This is God in the flesh. And when he says this, when he uses this title for God, notice what happens in verse number six. As soon, as, as soon then as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward, and they fell to the ground. Can you imagine around a thousand men falling to the ground at the name of Jesus? Can I tell you today and remind you today that there is power in the name of Jesus, that there is power in the words of Jesus? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. There is power in the name of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 11, verse number four says this, but with the righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove the equity for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. There is great power in the words of Jesus and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And so we see this great demonstration of Jesus' power. Now, if I'm one of those soldiers at that point, I'm second guessing what I'm about to do, right? I'm thinking maybe we should get out of here. But instead, they go forward and they arrest Jesus. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 47, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, uh, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. What was supposed to be uh, a sign of affection was a sign of betrayal. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And so Judas goes and he betrays Jesus. And this leads us to our third thought this morning. Number three, Jesus always had others in mind. Jesus always had others in mind. If you're with me still, would you say amen? Amen. Notice verse number seven. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said Jesus of Nazareth. And so now Jesus asked them for a second time. And Jesus always does things on purpose. He is a great communicator. He's asking the same question twice on purpose. He had a reason for it whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus says, okay, now twice you've said that you're looking for one person. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, twice now you've confirmed this truth, that you're looking for me. And Jesus answered and said, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. What was Jesus doing? He was showing that his, his thoughts and his heart was on others. He was thinking about the safety and the protection of the disciples. And Jesus says, since you've already said you're just looking for me, then you need to let these people go. If you're only looking for me, you said all all you want is Jesus of Nazareth, then you need to let uh, these people go. What do we see? We see the heart of Jesus and we see the compassion of Jesus that even in this great moment of betrayal, he was thinking about others. He wasn't thinking about himself, but he was thinking about the safety and the protection of his Disciples, Jesus always had others in mind. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, it's a Christ-like characteristic that when we are going through pain, that we actually think about others, that we think about someone else. G.K. Chesterson, he said this, How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. What would happen if, as a church community, as a church family, we started to become others-focused? What would happen if we really started to care about others uh, more than ourselves? I believe that we'd have no problem getting out 100,000 invitations for Easter. I believe we'd have no problem inviting people in our community to come on Easter weekend, and we would let the love of Jesus shine in our lives and shine through us to make a difference in this community in which God has placed us. Jesus loves them, and so he protects them. He says, let these go. We see the protection of Jesus. Psalm 138, verse number 7 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. Even when we are going through great uh, trouble, even when we are going through great uh, difficulty, Jesus promises to protect us and to keep us with his right hand. And so we see this this compassion. But I want you to see also completion. Notice the next verse in verse number 9. It says this, that the saying might be fulfilled. Everybody say fulfilled. Which he spake of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Now in Jesus's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prayed this in verse number 12: While I was with them in the world, I kept them in my name. Those who uh, thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. And so uh, this was a fulfillment of the words that Jesus spoke back in John chapter number 17. He's keeping them safe, just like he promised. And can I tell you today that whatever God promises will always come to pass? Whatever God declares will always come to fruition. If God said it, you can trust it. If God declared it, you can receive it and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it will come to pass. Whatever God has communicated, uh, whatever is communicated by God will be completed by God. The Bible tells us in Joshua 21, Joshua was coming to the end of his life. And in verse 45, he says, there failed not, uh, uh, not ought any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All, everybody say all, all came to pass. Joshua said, every word that God declared came to pass. The Bible says in Isaiah fifty-five eleven, so shall my word uh, be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing uh, whereto I sent it. Can I tell you today that it's not about what I have to say. It's not about what we think, but it is about what God says in his word. And he says that his word will not return void. It will not fail. Anybody believe today that the words of God are perfect? they will be completed they will not fail us we have a more sure word of prophecy jesus said i'm going to keep you safe and that's exactly what he did we come to a final truth that we learn about jesus number four jesus submitted to a greater purpose jesus submitted to a greater purpose if you got one more in you would you say amen all throughout Jesus' ministry, they misunderstood his purpose. They, they wanted him to be an earthly king. And uh, they thought that he was going to establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow the Roman government. But when they realized, man, Jesus is talking about eternal things and he's not going to do that right now, then they turned on him. They betrayed him. But Jesus always had a greater purpose. He always had something greater in mind. The, the plan of redemption, the plan of salvation was an eternal plan. That was his greater purpose. And, and I want you to see in these closing two verses, in verse number 10 and 11, two things. I want you to see the resistance from Peter Notice what it says in verse number 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword. You guys better be paying attention this morning. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it, and he smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That is what you call a miss. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter, he gets... He gets all fired up, and he's like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about this. And he grabs a sword, and, and he goes, and he chops off the servant's ear. He chops off the servant's ear. The servant, uh, he didn't even want to be there. The servant was just a slave from the high priest. They woke him up in the middle of the night. Hey, we're going to arrest Jesus. Oh, man, I got to go. And then he gets his ear chopped off uh, from Peter. And Peter is taking matters into his own hands, and uh, he goes, and he, and, he, and he takes his sword, and he swipes it at Malchus, and he chops off his, his ear. And we see great resistance from Peter. See, Peter never really understood why Jesus had to be betrayed. He never really understood why Jesus had to go to the cross. This was something uh, that, that he constantly questioned. And uh, in the moment we read this, and it's almost kind of commendable, like it's almost kind of courageous. Like we're kind of like, all right, Peter, you know, stepping up, okay, you know, doing a, doing a good job there, Peter. But in reality, Peter was letting his emotions get the best of him. You know, it's good to be passionate, but we need to have knowledge to back up that passion, The Bible says in Romans 10, verse number 2, For I bear them record that they have the zeal of God, but but not according to knowledge. And so we've got to partner zeal with knowledge. And here Peter had zeal. He was fired up, but he didn't do it according to knowledge because Jesus already told him that he had to go to the cross. He already knew this was the plan. This is something that Peter struggled with time and time again. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, it says, uh, From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go. Everybody say, must go. He must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. No, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. What do you mean? You can't suffer. Not our Lord, not my Jesus. You can't do this. But he turned and he said unto Peter, Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. See, see, Peter already knew Jesus had already rebuked him and said, No, Peter, I have to go to the cross. No, Peter, I have to go through this suffering. I have to go through this great difficulty. This was something that Jesus already told Peter, but Peter couldn't accept it. And so when this time came in the garden, and they're getting ready to arrest Jesus, Peter grabs his sword, and he takes matters into his own hands. And I thought about that, and I thought, We are just like Peter. Peter. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to protect you. Don't worry. Trust me. I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to protect you. We say, okay, Jesus, and what do we do? We grab our sword, and we start to take matters into our own hands. God says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. But rather than relying on God's provision, we pick up the sword, and we try to do things in our own strength. God says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to direct you. And what do we do? We pick up the sword, and we say, I'm going to do this on my own. I got this. And see, the problem was Peter was relying on the wrong sword, Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians that we are to take up a sword. We are to pick up the sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. And so Peter would have just trusted the words of Jesus, he would have never had to pick up the sword of his flesh. And I believe today that there ought to be some people at Rock Hill Baptist Church that would say, you know what, I'm gonna put down the sword of my flesh. I'm gonna stop trying in my own strength and I'm gonna pick up the sword of the spirit and I'm gonna say, not my will, God, but thine be done. Whatever you want me to do, God, that's what I'm gonna do. It's not about my flesh. It's not about the sword of the flesh. It's about the sword of the spirit. It's what God said that I'm gonna trust. See, the gospel is not about trying. It's about trusting Peter didn't trust that Jesus was in control in that moment. He had to take matters into his own hands. So often we go through life and we're swinging our sword and we're trying to do things in our own strength, all the while God's saying, just trust what I said. Just, just believe what I said in my word. And so we see this great resistance from Peter, but I want you to see the restoration from Jesus. We see the restoration from Jesus. Luke chapter 22, verse number 50 says this, And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. John was so kind to tell us that that was Peter. (laughs) And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and he healed him. The word suffer ye, it, it means allow me. Jesus was constrained. They were holding him back. He was constrained and Jesus said, Peter, and then he, looks to the guys that are holding him back, and he says, allow me. He picks up his ear, and he heals him. This is a beautiful picture of the grace of God. Malchus didn't ask for the healing. Malchus didn't represent any faith that we know of. But we see the love of Jesus shining through again, and his grace is extended to Malchus. See, yes, Jesus loved the disciples, but he also loved Malchus. And we see his grace extending through Yet again, Philip Yancey said this, grace like water flows to the lowest part. God's grace is available for all men. Titus 2 verse 11 says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Aren't you thankful today for the grace of God that has appeared to all men? So we see the restoration from Jesus. He picks up the ear, he heals Malchus. We see the grace of God. And then notice the last verse in verse number 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. Peter, stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting in your strength. Put up the sword into thy sheath. Put that away. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Peter said, I have... Jesus said to Peter, I have to drink from this cup. See, a cup is often symbolic of of pain, of suffering, of judgment. All throughout scripture, we see that there was the cup of judgment, the cup cup of pain and and suffering. A cup is often a picture of, of, of difficulty. That's why many trophies are in the shape of a cup because it is symbolic of the struggle and the toil that it led to the victory. And so Jesus said, I have to drink of this cup. I have to endure this suffering. I have to do the will of my Father. The Bible says in Isaiah 51 verse 17, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury that was drunk in the legs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. And so uh, a cup is often symbolic of judgment, of suffering, of pain. And Jesus said, I have a greater purpose here. I have to drink from this cup. I have to do this. It's necessary for the redemption of humanity the Bible says in Philippians 2.8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient, obedient to the will of the Father, obedient to the cup that was given him. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was obedient. He was committed to the will of the Father. He was committed to go through suffering. He was committed to endure this pain and this contradiction of sinners. He was committed to go to the cross that was before him. This entire scene in the Garden of Gethsemane happens under the authority of Jesus. Nothing took him by surprise. He knew it from the beginning to the end. He knew exactly what was about to take place. This was all a part of the plan of redemption. And here's what I want us to see this morning. Jesus relied on the power of prayer, and so should we. Jesus moved forward in the face of opposition, and so should we. Jesus always had others in mind and so should we and Jesus had a greater purpose and so do we and we have a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. Our purpose is to do the will of the Father, is to pursue the will of the Father for the glory of God. And as we get ready for this Easter season, and as we kick off this Cover the City campaign, what we're doing is not our will, but thine be done. We have a greater purpose, and that purpose is to let this city know about the life-giving, the life-changing, the message of Jesus, and we've gotta have all hands on deck and say, you know what, if Jesus loved me that much, I to extend this love to my neighbors, to my friends, to my family, and let this community know just how much God loves them. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Thanks again for listening today. If this message was an encouragement to you, let us know. You can email us at hello at rockhill.church and keep up with all the latest news at rockhill.church or on Instagram at rockhillchurch.